Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Today, I am delighted to welcome John Fairhurst to Life Beyond the Numbers. John, you're so welcome. Oh, well, Susan, it's, it's a pleasure. I, I can't believe you invited me, um, actually. Well, I know, given that I worked for you for many years, <laughs> I am taking a risk by bringing you on, but never mind. It's not live, so I can edit it out if it comes to it. <laughs> that, that, might, that might be really important. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we can we can put in the blooper reel later. That's um, it. Yeah, you can you can send requests, and I'll send out the proper version. So, John, like I said, I did work for you for a number of years. I was lucky. I'm sorry. I was lucky. I believe that I had you as my line manager for a good number of years, and we interacted in two different organisations, even, but under different conditions, I suppose. And. I'd like to ask you how you would describe your leadership style or your leadership philosophy. Yeah, it's interesting. And it was a pleasure working with you, by the way. And then, as is, I mean, this is maybe a way of answering the question, too, is I never really feel like people work for me in that traditional sense. And so whenever people say they work for me, it actually always grates a little bit. Because I always tend to think that we work together, you know, and it's one of those traditional interview questions, isn't it, about what's your leadership style? So I have the interview response, which I won't give you. Um, um, but for me, it's really interesting. I was thinking about this this morning. Where does this come from? You know, the way that you relate to people in the sort of workforce. And I, I think it's something my dad, you know, ran a, a fairly big company. He was the sort of manager of a big chain of hardware stores in the UK. And one of the things that I, I think he sort of instilled in me and my sisters too, actually, is this sort of sense that the people who know the most about doing the job are the people who do the job. And therefore, when you're a, a manager or a leader, actually, generally, you don't know as much as the people that are working for you about what needs to happen. And I think that applies whether you're talking about working in a shop or 
working in international development or running teams in Afghanistan or running teams in Geneva. And so his view was that you have to facilitate people in being successful because if being a leader is about, you know, obviously creating organizations success or teams success, then yes, there's a component around sort of shape where we're heading and developing a sort of vision that people can get excited and behind. But I, I think a lot of it is is really about enabling people to to be successful and to help you steer that. So I think that for me, the leadership style is is that. It's about facilitation that creates that sort of vision and engagement and then enables people to to be the version of themselves that contributes to that that vision. Um, so one of the things, I, I get this a lot of work, but people sort of often refer to you as management. And I hate the term with a passion because it's the same as the context of you saying, well, you work for me. It doesn't resonate with how I feel about working with people. Um, and I don't think that means that I don't lead. I'm not a leader but a lot of the sort of structure in terms about how people talk about it i i think seem to be much more hierarchical about what leadership means and i think in many people's perspective of leadership is what we see in films and all that kind of stuff um but I, yeah that that's not my my sort of center of it really it's a lot about trying to create the environment where people could sort of thrive and facilitate being successful and therefore the team and the, the agenda and the organization being successful so I don't know if that answers your question clearly it, enough it does and it's funny that you you picked up on that even because I definitely worked with you and and that's what I felt that I was working with you I would hope that people that worked with me or that reported into me felt they worked with me as well but one of the things I always remember from you was you saying, always give everybody the chance to be successful. Give them every opportunity to be successful. And I always admired that quality because a lot of us maybe want to shape or mould people to do what we want them to do. Whereas you always empowered us to let us figure out how to do things and we felt you had our back as well which I think is really important so when you say creating an environment that enables people to thrive what else goes into that environment and can it work if the organization itself is a bit dysfunctional you know what I mean so can a team thrive in a dysfunctional place yeah, I think so. I mean, this may be a terrible thing to say. I, I think all organisations are dysfunctional. So in a way, that's sort of the point, I think, is you you have to find a way to navigate through whatever the sort of the role is that you have. It, it's finding the way, the pathway to make progress. And for me, and I think this is true for most people, is, is a lot of that work is is feeling that there's progress i mean the jobs i do and i think the teams i work with is it's not about doing the same thing every day for five years it, it's about being able to see that you are progressively making a difference or a change whether it's in terms of improving 
the way finances work or or improving you know the, the sort of innovation within an organization whatever it is and i think that's part of the that's part of the leadership piece i think for me the role of a leader outside of creating that environment for the team is is helping the team find that pathway is you know creating the sort of the strategy or the approach or the the internal sort of partnerships that allow you to find the route forward to to progressively seeing whatever you're doing improve or get better or achieving something. And so in essence, I think if there wasn't a challenge to doing that, if there wasn't a dysfunctionality, then maybe this is me, but to some extent it wouldn't even be necessary to do the job, you know, <laughs> sort of it's too easy. Then what's the what's the point kind of thing? But maybe not everybody's the same and in one thing that to work in that kind of context but when, when I look through my career I think I've generally looked to work in organizations where you know there isn't just a turn up nine to five kind of thing but you have to develop this sort of theory of change if you like of is going to improve the organization or improve the outputs of what you want to do or the impacts of what the organization does and then with the team you know and the, as I said you know the, the people who really know what the job is really about, you know, develop that sort of thinking about how you take that forward and, and recognise it takes time. If I think about the role in the Global Fund, for example, I mean, obviously, like any everybody, COVID sort of created a bit of a, I mean, a literal blip in time um, where um, you couldn't move things forward. But, I, you know, I think the agenda in the Global Fund for the work that we're doing is, is probably, I don't know, six to nine years of of sort of evolution to get where we want to be. I think if you can build that sort of vision and show that you have milestones along the way of change, then that's what allows you to keep people aligned and motivated around it. Um, to... And you mentioned the Global Fund and you you worked in the private sector earlier on in your career and then moved more into international development and have been in several countries, I guess, at this stage. And I suppose what what are the commonalities across countries with working with people? And maybe are there vast differences too? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely a lot of commonalities in uh, my senses over time. And maybe this is more about me than the organisation I worked in, but I, it feels to me like the world has changed. I mean, when I go back to my my sort of start in the private sector, it you know, that private sector felt very different to how I see the private sector now. It felt much more. I mean, I used to wear a suit every day to work and a tie, and not that how I dress is, as, as my wife would tell you, a good representation of anything. But 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 that very sort of structured, formulaic way of working. Not that it was bad. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was fantastic organisations I worked in. But and then sort of rolling forward to now, where there's a lot of sort of structure and and. And, and discipline and professionalism in the development sector. So I'm not saying the two are not the same, but, but I do think the world has changed significantly in terms of how people perceive workplace is across the board. And then so the differences between the two, I think, have probably merged a little bit, which is a good thing. Um, but that said, I think, you know, the, 
there's definitely one difference in in the private sector and development where I think often in the private sector you just have such a very clear bottom line. It's very measurable and tracked and assessed. And and in the development sector, I think often in many places you don't quite have that that sort of north star. Not that there isn't strong performance management in management and everything else, but it's just not it doesn't have the same concreteness of if we do this with our pricing, this happens versus if we do these inputs into a an HIV or malaria program, the causality of what happens is just you know many different degrees of freedom. So I I do think that creates a different kind of culture often in the organizations. I think that there's a consistent commonality in in what we're just talking about, how people get motivated, I think is still very much about understanding what success looks like and 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 being able to see that success, what we're doing, how we're working, is contributing to it. I think that's a commonality. Um, I think one of one of the differences in in certainly the space I work now is is just the the vast variety of sort of culture, which I think you get in the private sector to some extent, but but not to the extent in terms of in the, in the global fund we work in, you know, in 130 countries. So in essence, you have, even internally, we have representations of many of those countries and cultures and, and languages and everything else. And I think that's an unusual mix to see in organisations. And then I think the other thing is that and then, you know, through the different roles I've had, you, I mean, this is where I've ended up doing the kind of work I do, I suppose, is you get to meet just a, a, such a massive range of people. And that goes all the way from people working in the sector, because in, in our sector, you get people who are from the private sector, to your point, you get people who are from the development sector, you get people who are from advocacy sector, you get people who are, who are, have lived and worked in in contexts that are quite unimaginable for most people to see. And of course, you also get to meet the people in countries that you're you're working with and supporting. Um, and in the private sector, I think you don't often get that. You don't sort of get to. I mean, you have customers, and if you're working on the sales force, then you get to get to interact with customers in the same way, but to interact with communities. And the, the the sort of thing you get in the development sector where you see the sort of the real lives that people have and the understanding of that I I think is is a huge difference actually and it's one of the things that for me and it obviously has sort of driven me to I guess stay in the sector because it's just to see the the ability of those people to navigate their lives in extreme poverty and huge challenges. Um and to be able to sort of support them to have access to more resources or access to do things that they couldn't do, I think is, is you know, incredibly important. So, But I think you don't get that kind of diversity so much in the private sector. Uh, no, I guess not. There's so many multinationals, but I, I think what you're saying, that that grassroots community level, you know, that for the size of organisation you're in, the equivalent in a private sector, I can't imagine they have the same kind of top down, bottom up that you would have. And 
one of the things there was a webinar that I saw that you were on and you mentioned that one of the critical roles is the voice to make sure to balance the agenda from a moral or economic perspective. And maybe you could speak a little more to that, John. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it's part of that shift that, you know, we've seen over the years. I, I, I mean, I think you see this at the moment, it's been on the news, you know, even yesterday, I think, or today, where you, you get some of these major companies making tens of billion dollars of profit, in essence, out of a context, which is not really to do with them. You know, as you know, I started my life in the private sector. I have absolutely supportive of private sector success and the, the need for investment and the need for profit and all the things that you understand as well as anybody. But I also see in the world at the moment, there's a number of spaces where the the equity, if you like, and the, the morality of how people are um, are making money is is not right. I mean, the inequity in terms of wealth and where that positioned, the, the huge profits that some companies are making in the context of prices on gas or or even interest rates, and as we see at the moment. And I, you know, and I, and I, I so I think that voice um, is so important to rebalance it. And what's really important is the voice in the private sector, because ultimately those organisations are driven by the voices in the private sector. They're driven by meeting investors' expectations. And we've seen some very important CEOs who've had a sort of a more sustainable agenda actually struggle to be successful, ultimately. You know, people like Paul Palmer at Unilever, who was incredibly successful for many years. But but it's clear, you know, that unless you have that voice within the investors, within the private sector, really pushing people to work differently, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on social responsibility, I don't think you can get the change. I don't think advocates and people outside are going to create, they can help people to account, but they can't create the shift. So I, I think that voice is incredibly important there. I also think that when you think about the role of governments, the fact that Civil Society Development Act has, you know, are, are trying to call governments to account for, you know, whether it's their ODA spending or their investment in climate change, or that that's almost inevitable that we would do it. What really drives them more is when you get voices from other spaces. So when the private sector is advocating for the government to do more on climate change, or to do more in terms of its responsibilities for overseas development, that is hugely powerful. So I think that voice from the different spaces is important. And, and it feels at the moment in the world, it's more important than ever. There are so many challenges that are affecting people. And if we don't get that call to action from people who manage some of the, the major resources in the world in the private sector, then I don't think we're going to get the changes that we need to really improve the context. And again, whether it's climate change or global health or the cost of living crisis or anything else these things are going to be driven as much by the private sector as anyone else so, so that that's really why i think it's important it is and 
I guess as you're talking, I'm thinking about what you do at Global Fund. There is the public-private partnership side of things. And because often we're at opposite ends of spectrums. We have the activists on one side and the capitalist on the other and never the twain shall meet for want of a better example. But there's a lot to be said for coming together. And there's a lot of uncomfortableness for people to cross that divide and to talk to the capitalist or talk to the activist. And it's interesting because we we share our common humanity at the end of the day, yet what prevents that, John, or what is in the way of it? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's necessarily anything in the way of it. I think that in, in any context, you want to have the spectrum, the spectrum of views, and, and I think it's important that you have the activists on one side who, you know, are advocating for something that may or may not be realistic in the in the context of what private sector organisations can do. But if they're pulling people towards the sort of centre ground to act, then I think that's really powerful because the truth is that the, many people in the private sector they do have expectations from shareholders and CEOs serve at the the will of shareholders and shareholders hold them to account for all sorts of performance. I think that, if you like, the tension that's created is actually enabling the middle ground to to shift in its space. It gives the ability for companies to do something or philanthropists to do something. So I think, if you like, the two ends of the spectrum are, are sort of important. One of the spaces that I think we still need to do a lot of work on is this space where you create the sort of shared value of the best of both. And that that means being willing to, if you like, the development space to invest in in supporting private sector solutions, recognising that we get a bigger scale of success by bringing people together to work on an agenda. The best example, I think, is the Global Fund is the way that we've created access to sort of something like antiretrovirals. So, you know, if you if you get a course of antiretrovirals for HIV in the UK or the US, they're $50,000, $60,000 a year. If you get the same course of treatment in, in Kenya or South Africa, they're $90 a year. And that's because we've created this sort of agreement where the market, the profitable markets for companies are high-income countries. The low-income countries would never be profitable markets. Uh, and, and so in a way, there's no value in them trying to sell the product there at a very high price. If you can create that sort of tiering of the space and you can get the companies to effectively out-license um, intellectual property so that generics manufacturers can do things at bigger volumes and, and lower prices, recognising you're not going to cannibalise the profitability, then you create, in essence, a win for everybody. And I think those mechanisms of you know, creating that kind of shared value where you know, companies can be successful as companies as they need to be to thrive and survive, but you can create spaces where their agenda is really supporting impact in the poorest parts of the world. That that we need to do much more of. And I think that requires people to negotiate that space. I don't think it happens automatically. And 
the Global Fund is an example, I think, of an organisation, it's not the only one, there's many others, that have created the ability to negotiate that space and created the market conditions where that conversation can happen. And I think that's what we need to do a lot more of if we're going to really change progress on the SDGs sort of markedly. And you can see that in the digital space, for example, where we can do a lot more of that, where you create access to technologies in low middle income countries in a very differential way to the way that they're accessed in high income countries. And it won't hurt the company's profitability, but it will make a huge difference to progress in poorer countries as well. And I don't think there's a barrier to that other than people being willing to negotiate the space, in essence. And it's funny you say that because it's exactly what I was thinking. It was like, is this so dependent then on key individuals being able to navigate that space as well? And like, for example, you're in negotiations with some organization for a number of years because it takes time to hammer everything out. And then the person at the top leaves. Do you have to start all over again? Are we very dependent on individuals buying into it or is it wider than that? No, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. I I think you can maybe us back to the first question that, that, that this is always about leadership. It's always about somebody being willing to do something differently. And therefore, that certainly can be a risk. I mean, we all know this. It's the same in the public sector as it is in the private sector. But the challenges we see in the world have a time agenda which doesn't align with the terms of politicians or the terms of, of CEOs. And I think that's consistently one of the the biggest issues and where I do think that there has been a, a lot of success is when you can create sort of institutions that become a sort of mainstay in an agenda. Um, you know, so organizations like Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, or organizations like the Global Fund that in essence have become the backbone to, to that kind of conversation, then I think you're a little bit less the whim of individuals when the Global Fund was formed, which is 20 years ago, it was formed as a public-private partnership, which is a word that we all use now as if like, it's natural. But 20 years ago, it was pretty groundbreaking as a initiative, as a concept. And not that everything has to happen around an institution like the Global Fund, but having those kind of mechanisms does create a consistency that goes beyond the terms of a CEO or the terms of a, a prime minister or Minister of Health or whatever, Minister of Overseas Development. So that's really helpful. And then and it's the role, I think, not, you know, organisations, a lot of the sort of non-government organisations can, can play. Um, and, and actually, it's also a big role, I think, that many of the big foundations can play is you can see their ability to think. One of the fascinating things, I think, about foundations like the Gates Foundation or Rockefeller or these big foundations is they they can think over a 30-year time frame. You know, they have the assets, they have the capability. They're not defined by an annual profit statement or an electorate. And yes, there can be issues with governance and the role that they play. And I think that, that that's certainly something that many of them need to think about very clearly. But, but they do have that advantage that they can look at issues and they can be that enabler 
over a time frame that goes beyond the usual time spans of leadership. And so I think that, to your question about what are the conditions that allow those kind of partnerships to thrive, I think there's actually a big role for you know, for philanthropy and, and foundations in that space because they can play that enabling role. They can provide the incentives and they can also provide the timeline that will make it work over a much longer period. Yeah, they can play the long game effectively. That's what they can do. And I'm reminded of, I attended an event in Geneva a long time ago, but it was about... I guess it was mainly about sustainability and ESG reporting and so on. And one of the speakers said, and it was an accountancy event, well, one of the speakers basically blamed all the accountants for everything that was wrong in the world, which it's a bit unfair, first of all, I think, because... It's not necessarily the accountants, it's the system that's been put into practice or the institutions that have built up around practices over the years. And like you said, I think that that annual profit statement drives so much and you can't just blame the accountants for that one. No, well, I mean, as an ex-accountant, I... I take the blame for all sorts of things, but are there things that accountants could do that would help for sure? Could they create better mechanisms for assessing sort of social contribution and do more to sort of assess the sort of health of a company that goes beyond just, you know, its balance sheet? It's not that I don't think they can contribute perhaps more than they have been doing. In many cases, they're not the driver of this conversation. I think it's I, I don't know. I, 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 uh, uh, one part of me thinks that we, we've moved a long way in terms of um, companies and foundations and philanthropy recognising the importance to do more and to have business models that are more sustainable, are more socially accountable. You know, in many places, you see many companies now thinking about their sort of carbon footprint much more systematically and learning that it actually is a good thing. It's actually a positive business profitability outcome to take steps in that way. Many companies thinking about fair trade, fair procurement, and how they deal with suppliers and all those kind of things. So I do think there's there's been a lot of progress in that. On the other hand, it does feel at the moment like when the opportunity strikes to make outsized profits, the source of those profits really being yeah, uncomfortable with the things that have been made because of the impact of the conflict in Ukraine. It doesn't seem many companies are really willing to to think responsibly about how they deal with that. Many shareholders, similarly, not holding the companies to account for saying, well, you've made billions of dollars of profit because of fluctuations in, in gas prices or energy prices or whatever it, it may be. And therefore, no, we don't expect that money to come out in dividends or or share buybacks. Um, so I still think there's some way to go in developing that right kind of approaches. And I, I worry a bit in the current context, actually, that we seem to be slipping backwards on that responsibility. If you look at the current discourse around climate change, that it does feel a little bit like we, 
we seem to be stepping backwards at the point that we need to step forwards in it. And it goes back to, again, to the point why I think the voice is these really key pieces of voice that the very important sort of forward thinking leaders who come out and say, okay, this is not how we're going to work is really important at the moment. And I think the other area that around all of this is well-being, for want of a better phrase, in the workplace, but I would say just optimal, healthy individuals in every way, shape and form, because again, the healthier we are going to work and the healthier the relationships we'll have at work and then the healthier the performance of the organisation. And there's still a lot to work around that. And accounting for people as costs is probably something that might need a refresh at some point in time as well. Yeah, no, I think that we all know this. I mean, it's it's obvious that a thriving workforce creates a thriving organisation. It's not a question. You know, just go back to that sense of, you know, even not labour labor accountants again. It does go back to how do we measure and what does thriving mean? It isn't just profit margin. It isn't just the quantum of profits. There's a really important part about how. And this is true in development sector too. I think that there's a lot of hard work, stress, burnout in development. And in some, some contexts, it's potentially even worse because people are so passionate about driving the outcomes and doing the most. I do think we need a, a broader assessment of what the right kind of way of working with your workforce or working with your staff really looks like we were talking about this before and in some ways i think this shift to remote working the sort of post-covid context on the one hand it's created an incredibly positive environment of sort of flexibility and um you know the the, the ability to be able to work from different places to engage in the workplace in a completely different way i, I think a very much recognized as valued by people but I think we all know also, on the other hand, it's created a sort of an environment of eight o'clock to six o'clock back-to-back meetings where you can't even go to the toilet in between because the next meeting starts. Even things like your commute time have now become work time, which I guess is part of the flexibility. But for me, a lot of the energy around the workplace is about people and, and being able to engage with and have conversations that are not directly work-related and in a remote work setting, it's much harder to have that interpersonal engagement and to do things around collaboration and to work on innovation, I think, is so much harder in, in a sort of video call context. And for new people, for people coming into the organisation, it's harder to get integrated, it's harder to, to create a career progression you know, and there's lots of evidence that it's also harder for women as well, too. And I'm not sure the solution is to make everyone come back to the office five days a week either, which is what some organisations are doing. I think there's so much in the current way of working that is better than the traditional five days a week in the office. But to make it work, it needs the same kind of investment to look at what makes organisations thrive and to understand how people are working together effectively and engaging effectively. Um, um, 
So I feel again more important at the moment to do that. I mean, this is me, and maybe it's my middle age. The, the global context does also impact on you, and if the news is full of unprecedented heat waves and global warming and uh, the conflict in Ukraine and all, all of this narrative, I think we, 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 we've got to sort of look after ourselves. And given that we spend you know, the vast majority of our life working, I think organisations need to look after the people if they want to be successful, because whether they like it or not, we're all working in that kind of global context. And therefore, that, that translates into you know, how we feel at work. It really does. Yeah, and it's global boiling at the moment, they're calling it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's not in the UK, so it's actually global freezing here at the moment. But yeah, in a lot of the world, the temperatures are just through the roof. Yeah, and not to overplay the analogy, but there is a bit of frog in boiling water context, isn't there? I mean, I feel this. If I sort of think back... It's not that I don't believe climate change is a real thing, but if I go back 10 or 15 years, I don't think I was conscious of climate change 10 or 15 years ago in the way that I am now. So I just feel like we've been through this sort of steady increase in in the temperature, and it's only now that we're recognising that, you know, the world is literally boiling around us. So, I, yeah, it just goes back to, I think, the importance of, I suppose a few things. I mean, one is that the importance of organisations nurturing people is always there, but it feels more important than ever at the moment because otherwise the, I don't see how organisations can continue to thrive in the long term and even attract people. The new generations have a different perspective and and I think if you, you want to bring them in and, and excite them about working in places then you need a different way of thinking about what work life looks like but also i think it goes to being clear about where you fit feels more important now than ever and maybe again maybe it's an age stage of life thing but to keep you centered if you like in all of what's going on i think is is hard at the moment i, I always feel in a way quite privileged to be doing the kind of work i have because I don't sort of question so much the value of it. The question whether I, you know, doing as well as I can at it sometimes, but that's normal. But yeah, but but I think having that clarity about why you're doing what you're doing is is sort of is important in in this kind of context. Mm. Absolutely, John. And we have more than ran out of time, or <laughs> run out of time even. And there's plenty left to talk about, as always, I think, when I come to the end of some of these conversations. But it is good to know that there's also life beyond the numbers. because That's what you've shown us here today, too, with your work and what you do in the world. And, and even though numbers are still important, a lot of it is about is about the life. I think, beyond those numbers too. So, John, thank you so much for your time today. And if people would like to connect with you, should they connect with you on LinkedIn or something like that? Yeah, you know, to thank you for, for letting me talk. I hope it's useful. It's always really 
fascinating to just have a conversation like this because you don't in a normal day or a normal month or even a normal year. So that point of reflection, I think, is hugely valuable. So thank you for letting me spill reflection to the extent it's useful. Yeah, and I'm very happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. It's probably the simplest place. And and thank you for doing what you're doing. As as I said a few times, I think, through this, it's more important than ever um, to sort of give people from all of your guests the tools and the, the thoughts and the reflections it's hugely valuable and and listening to some of the other podcasts you've done i think there's some really insightful stuff in there so thank you for facilitating all of that it's really useful brilliant i'm glad you enjoyed the conversation i've loved it thank you john cool thank you so much for listening i hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.